Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we enter into the Christian season of Advent by reading from the prophet Habakkuk. We marvel at the way Habakkuk moves us from the articulation of profound suffering to the casting of a hopeful vision, and then to expectant rejoicing in a restoration that has not yet come. We discuss the urgency of being honest about suffering and despair, not just in Habakkuk's day, but in ours as well. We think about the importance of articulating a vision that is so profound that it can inspire hope, and yet so simple that it can be read by people on the run. And we ponder the beauty of a resilient hope that rejoices even in the midst of despair, believing that the world has already turned, even though there is no evidence that anything has changed. Welcome to Advent, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am okay. Our listeners wouldn't know this, but it's been longer than usual since I've seen you because you were sick. I was sick last week. It was, yes. It was one of those things where my family was sick for like, I don't know, it was really quick. It was like a stomach thing. It was like 24 hours. But it threw the whole, like, the, the inner workings of our family. Does this happen to you? Yeah. It's like everything just barely holds together on a day-to-day basis. It's like basis. a house of cards, man. Yeah. You live in a house of cards. So our whole <laughs> life kind of fell apart. But it was like the sickness itself really wasn't much. But anyway, so we've pretty much pulled ourselves back together. But yeah, it's been I am glad two weeks since it. we've seen each other. Yeah, that's good. What's happening good. in your world? Um... I don't have I don't have a much of like a cheerful story today. I'd, to be honest, I don't know. You know me, Bobby. I don't often get overly concerned. Maybe I'm not concerned enough about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but I'm having a moment. There have been several things in the news lately. There was some graffiti like a mile from my house. Oh my like, goodness, Amy. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm. I feel unsettled. Yeah. I feel unsettled. I remember back in our Emory days, we took a class with David Blumenthal, who is Jew. Is he a rabbi? I can't remember. But anyway, Jewish scholar. Uh, I don't think he's a rabbi. But I remember him telling us that this was like in 2004 or something like that. And he would he told us that he kept like $20,000 under his mattress in case he needed to flee the country to Israel because of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like he was experiencing some sort of generational trauma, having grown up with people who survived the Holocaust and... Mm-hmm. That he would like was just being ridiculous, and it turns out he was not being ridiculous. He was just a little bit actually ahead of his time, or he knew something I mean, that I was very naive. I about hope anyway. I hope he was still being ridiculous. Yeah, but like I understand the logic of like, oh, but that I, totally makes sense it, to me. Yeah, now. it's it it's it's scary to have it sort of just under the surface, and then these it just seems to bubble up, and yeah, I don't know, I don't know. So that that's not a cheerful story. Let's see. What do I have that's cheerful? I don't know that My you need is- anything cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. That's that's just that's that's where my head is right now. I don't know. I'm a little spooked. I'm happy to see you. You're a good anchoring presence to me. Yeah. I also I'm glad to see you too, and I'm I'm sorry that that is the world that we live in right now. I, I will say that I think one of the valuable things that we do in Bible Worm is just uh, you getting to be honest about how you experience the world for an audience that is largely a Christian audience, not entirely a Mm. Christian audience. But I think sometimes people like myself can be a little naive about the way the world is actually for, for Jews and other uh, minoritized people. And so to have your voice reminding us of that, I think is super helpful, even though I know that doesn't make it worthwhile from your perspective, but (laughs) (laughs) I I wish we could avoid it, but, but I appreciate you and, and our listeners receiving it in some ways that you know the lack of a cheerful uh, intro is appropriate to the week I think both in terms of the book that we're reading which is the prophet Habakkuk and also in terms of the season that we're entering in the Christian tradition which is the season of Advent which is the season that leads us up to Christmas 
and, you know, culturally, like, Christmas started, like, I don't know, like the 1st of November or something. As soon as Halloween's over, mm-hmm. you start yes. hearing Christmas carols. But officially, in Christian tradition, there's a long period of waiting and recognizing that the world is not the way that the world ought to be. Mm. And then one celebrates Christmas as sort of like the promise of the world being set right again. And so lingering for four weeks of Advent in the sense that things are not right with the world is actually very much appropriate to the Christian liturgical movement. Mm. And also true, I think, to the way many of us are experiencing the world right now, just in general. So it's not just like those calendars with the little doors and you get a chocolate every day. <laughs> yeah. Is the feeling No, but really, like is the feeling of it of Advent What is the feeling of Advent? Like I hear the sort of waiting and anticipation. Yeah. Is there like a, a heaviness about it or a, like a longing about it or a joyful anticipation? How would you how do you experience it? I think all of those things are right. Mm. There is a So I one you're supposed to kind of embrace a little bit like the seasons are growing short the days are growing shorter and there's more just like uh darkness in the world and there's just this sort of like that's the feeling of advent is you know there is a world that is not exactly what god has in mind and we try to sit in that and be honest about that and at the same time one is remembering that in a few weeks, liturgically on Christmas, God is coming into the world in a new way in the Christian Mm -hmm. tradition with the promise of the messianic age being at least introduced. And then for Christians too, there's also the sort of second arrival of Jesus, which is also in mind, which is not just Christmas in the past, but also the return of Jesus at the end to sort of Mm. fully instantiate God's reign. And so it's hopeful, it's not joyful, It's hopeful, Mm -hmm. acknowledging the reality and the hope that the world could yet be different than it is. I think that's sort of the the sense of Advent. Does Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. It does. I like that description a lot. It is interesting. There are certain texts that Christians typically read during Advent. And I will tell you that Habakkuk is not one of them. (laughs) I don't know if that will come as a surprise to you or not, but it is true. It actually, the it fit pretty well, it does. I thought. It really does. This is one of the conversations that we have occasionally with the Bible Room Collaborative is, you know, a lot of people who uh, are preachers of the narrative lectionary will shift out and do something else during Advent because yeah. I, they say things like, I don't know what to do with those texts during Advent. And my experience has been, they strike you as odd texts at first, but then once you start to look at them and think about the season of Advent and like what Advent is doing, like, they are really interesting texts that open up different kinds of ways of talking about Advent. And so, I don't know, I think this is a terrific Advent text, even though it is a little bit unexpected. Yeah. Does Habakkuk play a role in Jewish tradition? I mean, I know it's in the Book of the Twelve, it's it's hanging out in there. Yeah, not a big one. I mean, there's part of Habakkuk is the Haftarah for the second day of Shavuot, which is like... (laughs) You would have to be in a pretty observant community to be reading the Haftarah on the second day of Shavuot. Yeah. I would venture to guess that most Jews don't really know anything about Habakkuk. There is, though, and I'll talk about it when we get when we get to the line, because there's a line that we read today that is important in Jewish history and in Jewish faith that I think people just don't know comes from Habakkuk. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll look forward to that. I also remember when we were, we probably in our first year of our PhD, or it might have been the second year of our PhD or something, but I remember Carol Newsom, our teacher, saying, if you've never translated Habakkuk from the Hebrew, you're not really a Hebrew Bible scholar. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not sure I've ever read Habakkuk in English. <laughs> uh-huh. like, I, I did. For, like, I went home and read it right then, but um, I'm not sure that I upped then. See, that's the difference between you and me. You went home and read it right then, and I still haven't read it in the <laughs> Hebrew. I, will, I made reference to the Hebrew today, but um, yeah, man. Jump through those hoops, Bobby. Yeah. All right, Amy, I don't know what there really is to say about Habakkuk by way of backgrounds, because we don't actually know all that much about Habakkuk. But if yeah. you were trying to get people oriented to this text, what would you suggest that they know? Okay, just a couple of things. So in terms of, 
of genre, I guess. Habakkuk is, as you said, you know, in the Book of the Twelve, as part of the prophetic literature, one of the, you know, quote-unquote minor prophets, mostly meaning shorter prophets, right. but as, as we said, also not terribly well-known. Right. There's a lot of human speech in it for for a prophetic book. Like it's the first parts of it are like a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Um, And then the last part of it is a prayer or a Psalm or something like that, which is just interesting. It's just interesting sort of genre wise to see where it fits with the other prophets. The book seems to presume the rising in power of, um, it calls them the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So, you know, we could try to date it as as sometime after that started to happen. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's really a pretty pretty vague dating and it and it seems like a lot of the book is very general in terms of like n- really not anchoring itself too closely to a historical moment. Yeah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls actually have a we there was found the Dead Sea Scrolls a long commentary on Habakkuk in a way that indicated that maybe precisely because it's not historically located very clearly, it really resonated with their experience then. And I think in a lot of ways we'll find that it resonates too with our experience now. That's really helpful, Amy, all of that. And that the, the Habakkuk Pesher at, the, at Qumran mm-hmm. is really one of the famous texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it it's exactly that. It's the Dead Sea sectarians interpreting Habakkuk as as it relates to their own time. That Habakkuk kind of had a vision that was really about the about their day, you know, four or five hundred years later. And I think you're exactly right. Like the the sort of the distance between this book and any given moment in history feels pretty thin. Like when I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, like that's totally what's happening right now. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think this text invites that kind of connection to the reader in all times and and places. Today, we're going to read a little bit from each chapter. Habakkuk is only three chapters long. Mm -hmm. And the first two chapters, as you were saying, are these dialogues between Habakkuk. Habakkuk complains, and then Habakkuk gives us an oracle about God's response. And so that happens for the first two chapters. So we'll read chapter one, one to seven, and then two, one to four. And then from the last chapter three, which is Habakkuk's prayer, or however we want to talk about it, We'll read 3b to 6 and 17 to 19. So I will start out reading the speech of Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. All right. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. The instruction is ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. Mm. So, Amy, the beginning of this text, it just seems like such a common human experience about the delay of violence and justice and calling out to God for why Why are you not doing anything, God? So, yeah. I'm just curious how you think about that introduction from Habakkuk? I mean, first, it it strikes me, you know, as, as I said in the introduction, and we already have sort of talked about how general <laughs> this is. Like, not even, it's not located in a historical moment clearly, but it, it doesn't even give us, at least for me in this fir- first part, any, like, resonant image, yeah. or it doesn't even seem like particularly poetic, no offense, Habakkuk, but it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, it, it, I, I just feel like the frustration in it, like how long do I have to cry out yeah. violence? Like yeah. what is happening? Yeah. How long are we going to have to wait? And it does move into more, I think, striking imagery, but I don't know. The fact that it starts with the question, not just the complaint about the violence, but the complaint about God's inaction. Yeah. Yeah, there is an anticipation here that God ought to be responding when when the prophet calls out or when the people call out violence and injustice. God ought to be set into action, and yet the prophet keeps calling out and calling out and nothing is happening. And so, so it's not just the violence, it's God's inaction in response to violence. Yeah. 
I think that it's so hard to ask questions because we're like, we don't know when this text is set. And so therefore, like, I can't ask you, like, what was going on in the time of Habakkuk that he was talking about? Although one might imagine if you set it in the period of the late 7th century when the Babylonians are rising on the scene, you're in kind of a messy period in Judahite history. But it's so, I mean, it opens up to so many times and places. And that call of how long, you know, here we are 20 500 years later or whatever it is. And like that same question is still the same question. Like we've been calling out for 2,500 years and yeah. nothing has, seems to have changed. Yeah. Bobby, does this, uh, this is sort of, maybe this is like a, I'm taking a sharp left here, but this way of, of like calling out to God and sort of calling God out yeah. for God's inaction are there other like texts in your mind, biblical texts or prophetic texts that, I don't know, that this just sort of connects to? I'm not sure this is ex- exactly a parallel, but the text that occurs to me, like I spent a fair amount of time in my life with the book of Lamentations and yeah. the communal voice calls out in Lamentations chapter five, Lord, consider what has happened. Look at us and take notice. There's that sense in which God is not paying attention to what's going on. Or in that same chapter, Lamentations 5, verse 20, Lord, why do you forget us continually? Why do you abandon us for such a long time? So that theology that God is not present as God either should be, or at least as God is expected to be, there are other lament psalms that are similar in that theology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting, like the theology of God's absence or the, like God, for whatever reason, is either not listening or is choosing, is listening, but is choosing not to respond. Like, that's such an interesting theology. It's, it's uncomfortable in a Christian tradition. I don't know if it's uncomfortable in a Jewish tradition or not. That's also a really good question. I mean, it, it, sure, it's uncomfortable, but it is well-trod ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's familiar. You know, it's interesting. I sometimes read in that the narrative lectionary Facebook group, sort of what people are thinking about for their sermons in particular weeks. And one question that I've seen come up a lot is where, where's the hope? Mm-hmm. Like I need, I need to preach a message of hope. And I have to say it, I don't feel any responsibility to give a message of hope in yeah. my, when I speak to my congregation, which is not to say that I, you know, can just leave them completely destitute and depressed, but but this kind of calling out like this honest, what is happening, crying mm-hmm. out to God is for me a, a normal mode of interacting. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that has always really drawn me toward the Jewish tradition. I described myself the other day as a Christian with Jewish sensibilities, <laughs> mm. uh, which I'm not sure is fair to either Christianity or to Judaism. But uh, but that's so partly what I meant was that there is a a familiarity in Jewish tradition about holding God accountable or about honest expression in the lament Psalms and elsewhere about the way in which God is not presently living up to God's responsibilities or something like that. The world is not Mm -hmm. the way that Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be. And Christians are by and large reluctant to do that sort of call God to responsibility. But you know, that's, this is the whole idea of covenantal theology is that God has made a commitment to people and people have made a commitment in return. And so there is a freedom in the Hebrew scriptures anyway to call God to account for for upholding the covenant in the way that, that God has promised. And I, I think that's what Habakkuk is doing here is saying like, we, we have an agreement, God, and part of that mm-hmm. agreement is that you're going to protect us from violence. And yet, yet here we are. So, so what are you doing? Yeah. That, that connects into verse four so clearly to me, that idea of sort of calling God yeah. to account. Can you say a little more about that? I mean, the you wouldn't know from the translation, but the my translation says, this is why decision fails. I'm, that's yeah. kind of a weird word. Yours had instruction, I think. Yeah. Um, the word the is Hebrew, actually Torah. Yeah. The Hebrew is Torah, right, which they don't necessarily mean like the capital T Torah, like the Torah scroll, but but they do mean that that kind of, teaching. And and I guess the way that that sort of falls on my ears is like, there are so many places in the biblical text where God is calling God's people to account and saying like, I have set everything out before you 
you know what you need to do to create a just world, do it. Right. And this is sort of the reverse of that is saying like, this is why Torah is failing because you are not doing your part. Like you're letting violence erupt and injustice spread all over the place. How are we supposed to bring about this just world that you have painted this wonderful picture of if you're kind of asleep at the switch? I love that, Amy, because I was going to shift in verse four because where it says the instruction is not is ineffective or the Torah is ineffective. What I was I was going to say now here, Habakkuk shifts to taking responsibility for his own shortcomings and the failure of justice. But that's I, but, so interesting. But you're exactly right. Now you have convinced me because what he says is that Torah is ineffective because the wicked surround the righteous. So like, like. You gave us this Torah, but there's, to there's so many wicked people that even no matter how righteous the righteous among us are, it's never going to yeah. work. And, yeah. and I, so I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there is an acknowledgement of human failure here, right? That human beings as a collective are not following the Torah because there's so many wicked people, but the righteous people are trying to follow Torah and it's still not working. And so God has created a system that doesn't work unless God yeah. acts. You've yeah. really helped me with that. I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. I love that, the image at the end of the villain, my translation is the villain hedges in the just man. Mm. Therefore judgment emerges deformed. Like you just sort of picture this individual Mm. person who's, who is trying to do the right thing, but they're like squeezed in this Mm -hmm. weird way that makes it all come out twisted. And that's a nice image. Yeah. Yeah, justice becomes warped is the common English Bible translation. And- mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, both of those, like this idea of, of some force working on it that, yeah. that twists it in a way that it's not yeah. supposed to be. Yeah. So Habakkuk has given a really descriptive explanation of the situation, and he's done it by way of calling out to God and saying, how long are you going to let this situation be like this? Mm-hmm. So the nature of Habakkuk, the book, then, is that God responds to Habakkuk, beginning in verse 5. It actually goes on for quite a, quite a while, but we'll just read 5 to 7. Okay. So this is God speaking. Look among the nations and watch. Be astonished and stare, because something is happening in your days that you wouldn't believe even if I told. I am about to rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation, which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. The Chaldean is dreadful and fearful. He makes his own justice and dignity. So the beginning of this text is something like, you think I'm not doing anything, but in fact, I'm, I'm getting ready to do something. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to like what it is. <laughs> I know. So you feel so hopeful for just a minute. Like, oh, God, get ready to do stuff. <laughs> Yeah. So can you say more about that you're not going to like what it is? Because I I think that's exactly right. But it's not sure it's clear in this text. Okay, I'll tell you what I see. But, you know, help me out here. I mean, I am raising up the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians, Mm -hmm. right? A fierce, impetuous nation that goes around taking other people's homes. (laughs) Yeah. They're terrible, dreadful. They make their own laws and rules. I don't know. That, I, I see that as like, God's like, oh, you think I'm not doing anything? Yeah. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. Like the problem is not my inaction. However, I don't think God's action solves the problem yeah. either. I mean, I, I mean, I guess it saves us from the idea that God has abandoned the whole situation or that God is powerless in the face of the Chaldeans. You know, the Biblicists don't generally like those theo- theological options. But it's, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to expand our reading, and I don't know what happens next. But, like, why, I just wonder why, like, I, how is that comforting, God? <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, no, I think you've named it really nicely. And I, there's actually a debate about how one should read that. And it's related to the debate about when this text was written. Mm. And so it's not, the answers are not obvious, I think, here. But 
here's the two, the two possibilities as, as I understand them. One possibility is that this is written in the time of Babylonian rule or shortly thereafter. And so what it's saying is you think there's violence and I'm not doing anything. But in fact, I'm the one who raised up the Chaldeans in the first place, who are mm-hmm. the ones who are doing all the violence. Mm-hmm. And so the violence is purpose has a purpose and it's a divine purpose. And then later on, there's going to be some working out of it. Yeah. The other possibility is that this was written earlier, say toward the end of the seventh century, before the Babylonian exile, when Assyria is still sort of a power, but is losing its power. Mm. If you read it that way, it's, I mean, it's sort of the same, but it, but it's shaded differently, which is this, the violence that is taking place currently is somewhere between Assyria and the power vacuum that is left by the Assyrians kind of diminishing. And in order to take care of that violence, God is raising up the Chaldeans who are going to come and do violence to the people who are causing the other violence. Mm. So it would have a an, uh, not quite salvific effect, but it would address the immediate problem. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know if there are other options. Do you, I mean, if, mm. if those are the two options... Do you have a thought about, I was going to say which one you prefer, but I don't know if that's the right question, but like which one, is there one of those that is useful, more useful, helpful? It's a good question. I mean, if we read this just as God saying, oh, don't call me inactive. I'm active. All right. Like I'm the puppeteer that's causing all this violence in the first place. I don't know what to do with that. Like I don't, I, that's, that's rough. (laughs) I don't, that's, that does not help me theologically. I I, I would rather have the sleeper God than the sadistic God. And that's at least without further explanation of why this is happening. Yeah. That's it. That's what it seems like. I mean, that interpretation would be something like the prophet Jeremiah who says the people of Judah have gone so far astray that God is raising up the Chaldeans to punish them. Yeah. And so you've done violence, or the, so the way I'm, God is going to solve the violence is by bringing the Chaldeans to do more violence to punish you. Right. So that, that framework's not unfamiliar in a biblical tradition. For sure. Yep. But I agree yep. with you that it's not a theology that I really know very much what to do with. I don't do know with. what to do with it. The other option, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it has the advantage of of ultimately saying, like, I am coming to help you. But it is frightening to me the description of how that help is going to come. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if it would have been frightening to I mean, maybe if maybe if you are so oppressed and beaten down and terrified, the idea of some, you know, lawless and dreadful people rising up seems like almost anything that would rock the boat at this point would be good. Like anything to break up power the way the chips have fallen at the moment, do it. But it's very, it's very chaotic and scary to think about this as the resolution to a violent situation. Yeah. No, I I agree with you about all that, Amy. And I think I probably also prefer the second model in which God is raising up the Chaldeans in order to break up the violence that is happening already. So Mm -hmm. the Chaldeans are the solution to a pre-existing violence, not Mm -hmm. the sort of perpetrators of violence themselves. But it's clear enough that they are a pretty, I mean, the language is impetuous and they travel Mm -hmm. around and possess people and take over stuff that's not their own, which by the way, has been a theme in this season of Bible or in the season of the narrative lectionary yeah. about I'm giving you this land that you did not plant. And then we had, where were we? we had another text that was, oh, it was the Isaiah text where the Assyrians were saying, we're going to let you, we're going to allow you to plant your own gardens or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So here we see it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amy, the way, so, I mean, one of the questions that I think about is what does it mean for God to punish the wicked? What does it mean for God to instantiate justice? Like, what are the means by which God could do that? And 
you know, like there's like a supernatural way of thinking about it. And then there is a more mundane way, which is that God acts through the specificities of historical realities. And the biblical text uses that kind of a lot. Assyria is the razor that God uses to, you know, trim Mm -hmm. the overgrown hedge and, and so on. And there is a reality that is, that is there, I think. And one that you're sort of pointing to is that the transition from warped violence to a different way in which the world works properly is not smooth or easy or magical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. suddenly happen. And so one of the ways of reading Habakkuk is God saying, okay, like we can get someplace different, but it's going to be, it's going to hurt to get from here to there. The world has to be upended. The world Mm -hmm. has to be, in order to be set right, it has to be overturned. And so there is a falling apart that has to happen before there can be a, a new possibility. And we can do that, but I want you to understand. Yeah. Couldn't there be a possibility of like a a good guy army, mm-hmm. you know, who's like strong and protective and, but not like impetuous and stealing houses? Yeah. Yeah. That's not the option on the table. I mean, we saw something like that <laughs> a couple of weeks ago in Micah where that new ruler from Bethlehem is going to mm-hmm. carry so much dignity and the people are going to respect him and it's going to bring peace. Like, I, I do think that option is also available in the biblical text in places. Yeah. Here, that is not, I don't think that's Here, what's that's being, not what's being described. Here. It really is. It's like, we're going to set the whole thing on fire. Yeah. Like, we're, it's going to get worse before it gets better, is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. I think, I think that's the way, I think that's the way I read it. Mm-hmm. This language in here, a work is being wrought in your days, which you would not believe, even if it were told. Yeah, I just find that so, I hope it's not like an overly dark thing to say, but so resonant with how I feel sometimes in the modern world. Like it is unfathomable to me the things that I read about in the news and hear, and, you know, even just hear about in people's individual suffering, but that's not sort of on a, on the same magnitude things that I would not believe if I, if someone had told me, like, if you can't see it with your own eyes, you just wouldn't believe it could be true. Hmm. I don't really have anything profound to say about that, but it just, I don't know. I feel that I feel the magnitude of what God is saying there. Yeah. No, I agree with you about that. And, you know, there's a way of reading it, which is the horrible things that you're about to see, you can't imagine, but there's also a way of reading it, which is Mm. there is a, there's a new world coming into being that is so wonderful that you can't, given how bad it is right now, you can't imagine how wonderful it's going to be. And I think both of those kind of go, go together in this text. Like there is, mm-hmm. there's a new possibility that is so far beyond your imagination that like could even be that good that you can't see it. But in order to get there, we're going to have to go through some stuff, which maybe also you can't envision. No, you're you're totally right. And it's a little strange to me that I didn't even see that possibility. Maybe I just, I feel like these Chaldeans are being described in such a daunting and menacing way. But you're right. If that is the, that's the hammer that's going to break things open and allow for something else, then maybe that, that first, that first part in verse five is, is, is looking past that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think partly to read it looking past that as I've done is to anticipate what is coming in chapter two, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, I think if you're just reading chapter one, then what maybe what Habakkuk is saying, what God is saying in Habakkuk is, I'm getting ready to raise up the Chaldeans and you think you've seen some stuff now. Yeah. And that's interesting to try to hold it there, even if you know what's coming in the next chapter. But yeah. to, it is sort of, it's just the bigness of it, just the yeah. enormity of it and that, violence of it and just sort of sit with that fear, awe, and not know which direction it's going at this point. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the narrative lectionary, and Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. 
sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year, I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who starts sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Let's take a look at chapter two. This enters in sort of right at the end of Habakkuk's or second, like Habakkuk comes back at God after God has, has said what we just read. We're just going to pick up at the very end of that and then read God's response. Mm-hmm. So Habakkuk says, I will take my post. I will position myself on the fortress. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write a vision and make it plain upon a tablet so that a runner can read it. There is still a vision for the appointed time. It testifies to the end. It does not deceive. If it delays, wait for it, for it is surely coming. It will not be late. Some people's desires are truly audacious, but they don't do the right thing. But the righteous person will live honestly. Mm. I just like the part that draws me in about this text is that line in verse two, write a vision and make it plain on a tablet so that a runner can read it. Yeah. I just think that's such a lovely image. It really is. And my translation doesn't have it quite so, um, doesn't have quite such a clear, a clear image. It just says, inscribe it clearly on tablets so that it can be read easily. Oh, but, that, <laughs> that loses know, something. That's no fun. Yeah. That's no fun. I mean, yeah, even just the, I mean, I guess prophets are told to write things down all the time, but like we're going to be given some bit of hope here. And the yeah. first instruction is like, write it down. Yeah. Write it down for everyone to see because you're, you're going to need it. Yeah. If you follow that image of like literally so that a runner can read it, is what it says. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, there's just so much there. Like how, what do you do with that image of writing a vision so that a runner can read it? Well, it would have to be very simple yeah, and short. Yeah. You know, like you have to get right to the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think all of this sort of poetry and floweriness and maybe even decoration around, you know, the words of the inscription that one might want to add, you shouldn't. Yeah. Like it, it is the message itself in its simplest, cleanest form is what you're going for. Yeah. I love that. And think so somebody who's just running by can look at it and be like, oh, that's what the vision is. And to think about like just metaphorically, like people are running all the time. Like we're all harried and busy and mm. scrambling to make ends meet. And, you know, if, if there's violence all around, just running from here to there. And so people are rushing and running. And and so this is saying people in that state need to be able to understand the vision. So state it clearly and briefly. Yeah. Okay. So here's my, here's my dumb question. Is this a no dumb questions podcast? Because if not, this is a dumb question. Amy, I'm not sure there's ever been a no dumb questions episode (laughs) episode of Bible Learn. Okay, good. I feel like that's kind of our thing. Here's a a dumb question or a simple-minded question. So for all of that beautiful introduction, it is not clear to me (laughs) what Habakkuk should be communicating in this pithy and carefully carved little piece that he's supposed to hang up for people. Is it clear to you? There's still a vision for the appointed time, Amy. If it delays, wait for it. Oh. But what is the vision, Bobby? <laughs> I don't know, because Habakkuk didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I take your point. Like, there's a thing for which we are waiting, and it's still coming. We're waiting for something. Yeah. But I do not think it is clear what exactly we are waiting for. But it's, it's implied that we're waiting for something better to happen. And I think the last 
section of this chapter or ne- the next chapter will give us a little more to work with. But yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, this is the you know I mentioned earlier that there's part of Habakkuk that works itself right into the center of Jewish life in a lot of ways that oh, people yeah. might not know. And it's this, even if it tarries, wait for it yeah. still. So a thinker, a Jewish thinker named Maimonides, generally 12th century, wrote these, a lot of very famous things, but one of them was his 13 principles of faith. Oh, yeah. And the 12th of them is, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he may tarry, still I await him every day. So, like, that's famous just because it's Maimonides, and he's referring here to this, you know, even if it tarries, even if the it here being the messianic time or the Messiah, however that's, you know, to be understood by different generations. But then that is set during—it's been set to a lot of different melodies because it's beautiful. And there's a particularly famous melody that at least the the apocryphal story—I don't know if this is historically true— is that a, a rabbi in a, a cattle car en route to Treblinka mm. during the Holocaust, that this sort of setting for it mm. came to him. And one person from that cattle car escaped and sort of brought it back. But there's this like tradition that Jews would walk to the gas chambers singing, mm. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, which is just, it's a, I mean, maybe I could link to a recording of it somewhere and, yeah. you know, Facebook land, Anima Amin, if you want to look it up in Hebrew, but it's just beautiful and gut-wrenching. And the the juxtaposition of of insisting upon hope. Yeah. Even in the face of this immediate violence and destruction and fear is sometimes just more than my little heart can hold. But yeah. But thinking about that historical context and reading this text. I don't know. I don't know what Habakkuk's historical context is, but it sounds like things are pretty bad. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I think it would be tempting to just say, don't worry, have hope. Like it's going to be okay, which is great, but it's like have hope in the faith of, in, have hope in the face of the worst violence and injustice yeah. that you can imagine. Yeah. And still have hope and write it down and hold it up for people. That, that's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, a lot that's really, really beautiful, Amy. And I think that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here, is to say in the face of all of this violence and in the face of the Chaldean response, which is also violent, there is, yet there is hope. And and if it's if it seems like it's not coming, it's still coming. I think that's exactly what Habakkuk is saying in his context I love what you're saying about it with regard to Maimonides and the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, I think that the way of reading this during Advent for Christians is very, is very similar, which is Mm -hmm. to say, and that's trying to, you were asking me at the beginning of the podcast, what is the sense of Advent supposed to be? And I think it really is supposed to be kind of that, which is in the midst of a world that is conflicted and violent and impossible there is a there is a hope for a, for a messiah mm. i think a lot of times christians and especially american christians and especially american christians during advent have a really hard time tapping into that sort of sense of the the difficulty and complexity of the world and so it becomes a little bit trite but i think what you're saying is exactly right like the proclaiming of the possibility of a new way of life when it seems like such a way of life is impossible in the most difficult circumstance you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I think that's what Habakkuk is after. And also I think that's what Advent is is supposed to be about. Yeah. I mean, it is hard to be fair to say like, you're going to feel this, but then you know in whatever, 25 days, it's going to be over and it's going to end with a big celebration. Like it's really hard to hold on to like that authentic. Absolutely. It is. Struggle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, it, yeah, that's that's hard. It's hard to ritually recreate that. Yeah, no, that's exactly true. The other thing I think that's important there is, like, it, when you think about that situation you're talking about on the train to Treblinka, like, the vision that is cast needs to be a simple vision, which is the Messiah is coming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a detailed, like, 
draft of right. a plan about and exactly a strategic what that's plan for the Messiah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> and so here is a call for a vision that is inspiring and simple. And it doesn't like, we were like, well, what exactly is that vision? Well, I think maybe that's part of the point is that you don't know exactly mm-hmm. and you don't need to know exactly. And you don't need to cast it so specifically. You just need to hold out the possibility or the reality that there is, that there is a, a new time yet to come. One of the things I love in this text too is that like what I, what Habakkuk says is I'm going to take my post, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to see what God's going to do. Yeah. And God's immediately says, write a vision and make it plain. It's like none of this like standing around at your watch post to see what happens next. Like your job, Habakkuk, you prophet, is to cast a vision that the people can hold on to. And I think of that as like the task of preachers and prophets and leaders to to cast a vision instead of waiting to see what's going to happen next. Like our job is to be out casting a vision. I think that's exactly right. And, and I'm starting to pull together this theme of waiting that's, that's throughout this text because part of the vision is like, sit tight. Yep. You know, yes, though it tarries, something's coming and you have to wait. Okay, so we'll move from there then to this last chapter of Habakkuk. So this is the prophet then speaking what is described in the text as a prayer of the prophet, picking up in three, chapter 3, verse 3b. His majesty covers the heavens and his praise fills the earth. His radiance is like the sunlight with rays flashing from his hand. That is the hiding place of his power. Pestilence walks in front of him. Plague marches at his feet. He stops and measures the earth. He looks and sets out against the nations. The everlasting mountains collapse. The eternal hills bow down. The eternal paths belong to him. Mm. Okay, so here we have a vision of God kind of now seeming to show up in actual, I was going to say in person, but that's not exactly. God gets God. God doesn't show up in person. (laughs) Sounds like he's the sun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to do with this image exactly. Like, God, like it sounds amazing and scary. Yeah. Yeah. It does sound amazing and scary. And even the image of, you know, my translation is that God's glory is enveloped in, you know, gives off this brilliant light with rays on every side and God's glory is enveloped in those rays of light. Mm. And and what that made me think was, you know, it sounds it sounds great. But also you can't, it like creates a distance. You know, mm. it creates a visual distance. You that's that's how God's glory is is protected from the, you know, human glance. Is that what you would say? Human eyeballs. It's protected from the human eyeballs by all those rays of light. Yeah. What do you make of the pestilence and plague? I mean, I read this again as sort of what I was saying early on with the Chaldeans that the arrival of God in the world involves an up, uh, an upheaval of the world the way that it is. Mm. And so I read God here sort of showing up as radiant and beautiful, but also like God is powerful and disease is sort of leading the way and the mountains are trembling and the earth is kind of giving way. Mm-hmm. So I think my instinct is to read this as kind of a, you know, I mean, it's sort of a pre-apocalyptic idea that when God shows up, the earth trembles and it's not pretty. It's not just like suddenly Mm -hmm. everything is all puppies and rainbows, but there Mm -hmm. is a suffering that that happens in in the meantime. I don't know. What what do you, how do you read that? Well, I like your description and it has me picturing like, I mean, I sort of, I got that part of it with, you know, the mountains falling down and the, you know, hills sinking low and stuff that these like big, powerful things in nature and creations being undone in some ways, like God's bigness in the world is, is overwhelming to creation. And, and, and part of that now I'm sort of picturing this like, like circle of disease sort of circle of like, if you could imagine like nuclear something, you know, sort of coming from this incredibly powerful being. And yeah, everything in a certain field would die. Yeah. So an image of like supreme power 
undoing of of the sort of natural, I don't know, some natural things in the world, some natural protections, the way things usually work. Not exactly comforting, but I guess if the alternative, I guess if you're at the place where you're like, we just have to blow it all up, like it's, there's no way to fix this, then maybe this is better than the Chaldeans. They sounded terrible. Mm-hmm. No, I like that image of, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but the idea that for a new world to come into being the world as it is has to come undone. And I think that that's pretty consistent in the biblical text. And even just thinking about like that text that we read every once in a while in Luke that talks about the arrival of Jesus in the world and the the powerful are pulled down from their thrones and the hung, the what the wealthy are sent away hungry. And like there there is a sense in which that, even in the New Testament, the arrival of Jesus in the world is accompanied by the undoing of the world as it is. And there's a certain amount of, like, I don't like to think about that part, <laughs> but but I think that really is is the way that it is. Like, you can't just start something new, but first what is what already is that has become warped has to come undone. And yeah. this, I think, is, is talking about that. I do think it's the sort of thing where when when you read this as somebody who fits in pretty well into the contemporary world, you know, the current world works pretty well for me. Not exactly as I would like for it to, but the thought of the world coming undone is more frightening than it might be to someone for mm-hmm. whom the current world has, has not really functioned well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's place. right. That's right. So I want to make sure we get to the last part of this text, which I think is such a beautiful little text in chapters in three seventeen to 19. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to go ahead and read that. And yeah. you can come back and talk about some other things if you want to. Habakkuk continues, Though the fig tree doesn't bloom, and there's no produce on the vine, though the olive crop withers and the fields don't provide food, though the sheep are cut off from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my deliverance. The Lord God is my strength. He will set my feet like the deer. He will let me walk upon the heights. Just that shift in the middle of that about there's that imagery of emptiness and barrenness. There's no blooms. There's no olives. There's no sheep. There's no cattle. And then that I will rejoice in the Lord. I just Mm -hmm. find that so, I just find that so moving. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a different, you know, it's interesting. We started out talking about how in chapter one, the the idea of, you know, Torah of justice of like this, this world that God was trying to set in motion, the society um, was just totally failing. And this image that Habakkuk ends with also seems like an undoing mm-hmm. of so much of Deuteronomic theology. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Deuteronomy, if you're if you're doing the right thing, you will have figs and you will have grapes, you know, like the land will be good to you. And this person has nothing. And it's not even just violence against them that is coming from wicked humans. I mean, it seems like even the natural world has turned against them. Mm-hmm. Even the trees are not budding. Mm-hmm. And so there is no practical reason, I don't know, practical maybe isn't the right word, that they should feel any sense of comfort or security. And then it take and then it swings you all the way to the other side and says, like, be that as it may. <laughs> yeah. But then what what is it, what is that line? I will rejoice in the Lord. Like, I don't know. I want to say, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord then? Like, what is that? What does that mean when you're when your life looks like the life that's described here? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a really great question and you know in a sense you're exactly right that the imagery at the end of this book is at, as stark as the imagery at the beginning if not if not even more so and yet the beginning of the text was crying out to God and the end is rejoicing in God and and what has changed. And to me the thing that has changed is the casting of the vision in chapter mm-hmm. two, even though the vision is seemingly pretty abstract, that there is a the promise that even if God seems to tarry, that there is something else that is coming, mm-hmm. that that is enough to shift the cry to rejoicing. 
So then this rejoicing at the end becomes a sort of act of radical faith mm-hmm. that in fact, the vision that has been cast by the prophet is believable and is to be believed. And therefore you can rejoice in this future promise that has been cast despite the present circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of as close as I can get to it. I love that. It, 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 it brought to my mind this Hebrew word bitachon, which is like radical trust in God, yeah. which is the kind of thing where it's like, there is no reason. I can't point to a dang thing that indicates <laughs> that this, you know, that I should have hope or that this is probably going to be fine or, yeah. you know, God has my back, whatever. You can't point to anything. And yet, you know, and yet you, that's where you you manage somehow to put your faith in God. And that's pretty incredible. I'm thinking about the conversation we had at the beginning about how this text in the Hebrew tradition seems to be valuing calling to God, calling God to account. Mm. And then sort of where we have ended up is rejoice in God, even when the circumstances don't necessarily seem to warrant it. And I'm trying to think about whether this sort of rejoicing at the end undermines the complaint at the beginning. Yeah. Like you should rejoice instead of complain or whether something else is happening. Do you, do you know what I'm struggling about? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think this doesn't really answer your question theologically, but I think in terms of relationship, I think there is something about like, like, um, like if we don't think of it like a, this is not a lawyer trying a case. This is, you know, a couple that's arguing or two close friends or something like that. And that there's, you have to say what's true for you. Like you have to call to account when that's what's on your heart. And I think you're right that, well, you didn't quite say this, but like nothing's really resolved here. The situation hasn't really improved, but I think there is, there clearly has been some transformation within Habakkuk that maybe came from some combination of saying all the things Mm -hmm. and then, God offering again, yeah, this really like pretty vague hope of like something is coming, though it tarries. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not a meaningful like theology. I mean, I guess it could be some kind of theology of relationship, but it, 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 that's the best I got. No, that I like that, Amy. Something changed, but it the way that I was putting world. it together as I was listening to you was the rejoicing at the end is not possible without the casting of the vision in chapter Mm. two. Mm -hmm. But one can't cast the vision in chapter two until one has articulated the background against which the vision is to be cast. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like this is the situation and it is an unlivable situation. Something else is possible. Mm -hmm. And then once you have been able to say that, then you can rejoice in the possible. But you can't just skip right to the end and be like, yeah. hey, let's just rejoice all the time because things are great, you know? There has to be yeah. those other, so those, those three moves, I think, belong together. Yeah. You don't want to get stuck in the complaint, um, but right. nor do you want to short-circuit it by just trying to rejoice all the time. I think that's exactly right. It's hope and rejoicing in the face of real suffering that's at the heart of this, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you can't take one or the other part out mm-hmm. of it. And in the middle is the prophet or the the preacher or the leader or whomever who has to cast the vision, take the complaint, cast the vision, offer the possibility of rejoicing. Yeah. That's lovely. That was Brokeman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know that Brueggemann actually says that about Habakkuk, but that was exactly Brueggemann's view of what a preacher does. (laughs) (laughs) all right amy so we've talked a lot already about how this connects i think to today uh because this text just naturally lends itself in that way but as as we're pulling our thoughts together here at the end about where is this text intersecting with the contemporary world and with our communities where do you want to point our attention hmm 
Yeah, we've, we've had so many good conversations about this already. I think I am feeling particularly moved by not just that sort of word of hope, which is largely the command to wait, keep waiting. Mm -hmm. I'm still here, keep waiting. But that the instruction to write it down, Mm. I think that just makes it so real for me. Like that just pulls me right into like the world you're you are going to live among injustice like that is maybe not forever but at least for now that's where you are yeah and you know i know we've talked before about how at least our lives of faith or my life of faith is not one of just coming to a belief or coming to a moment of hope and then great i've like leveled up and i stay there forever it's it's much more of an up and down <laughs> an up and down kind of thing and i think thinking about how a person would try to hold on to real hope in a way that would allow them to endure real injustice and suffering. Mm -hmm. I just see so much sort of care and awareness of the human condition in the instruction to write it down. Mm. And I think that is an instruction that, that I will take to heart that when I have moments of hope, that I need to write them down yeah. because I will need them later. And though they feel so real and alive in the moment, mm. they're fragile and suffering is real. And I ought to carve them in simple <laughs> in simple terms into a piece of stone so that I can go back to them later. I love that, Amy. And you know, I think I think that one step that Habakkuk is making in addition to that is to say, so that others can see. So it's important to remember our moments of hope in the presence of suffering, but it's, and it's also important to cast hope so that others who are feeling hopeless can see as well, hope as testimony. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you landing with this text today, Bobby? I am thinking about this text. I'm trying to think about it as a Christian in the season of Advent And I feel like the orientation of secular Christmas is toward the rejoicing at the end. Like like secular Christmas doesn't know what to do with any of this text until the very last verse. Yeah. And so like, I will rejoice in the (laughs) Lord. Great rejoice. (laughs) Right. I mean, secular Christmas is like, I will rejoice in Santa Claus. But like, I feel like there's so, so much of a temptation for this to be about shallow rejoicing. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about the task of, not just of the preacher, although I think it is here, but also just the task of the believer in casting the vision. And that vision points forward in hopefulness in the way that you are describing. But I think there is also an importance, especially among established establishment Christians like myself, to cast the vision in light of the reality of suffering that is present in the world today. Mm-hmm. And that we do ourselves a disservice and we do Advent a disservice and we do the faith a disservice when rejoicing is the beginning point. And so I think there is work to be done, especially for people for whom there is some insulation between our daily lives and the ugly realities of the world as it is experienced by others to articulate that situation as the thing in which a vision needs to be cast that leads us then to rejoicing. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's difficult to do and it's hard to sit with. And a lot of times people would rather not hear the difficult things. But to me, that's that's the crucial moment for Habakkuk is the vision needs to be cast in the context of the experience of feeling like God has abandoned. And then oh no, there is hope, there is rejoicing. But you've got to have that first experience to articulate the world, the ways in which the world is falling apart and the ways in which the world needs to further fall apart so that hope can be genuine. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really difficult message. And I think it's really probably very hard to 
preach. It's really, I mean, it's hard to like sort of fabricate it. Like Habakkuk is surrounded by it. He can't right. get away from it. Humans want to get away from this. Right. Habakkuk can't. It's hard. It is hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's real. Who said Habakkuk wasn't a, wasn't a good Habakkuk Advent text? Habakkuk was a good text. <laughs> oh, it's a great Advent text. Yeah, it's a good yeah. text in general. Next week, we're going to be in another text that is not usually an Advent text, but it is a wonderful text in the Hebrew Scriptures in the book of Esther, quite the famous chapter of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Oh, I am very interested to see how Esther could connect with Advent. I am, I am as well. We'll see, we'll see what hmm. we can do with it. Okay, sounds good. All right, Amy, I'll see you next time. See you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll continue with our second Advent text, reading Esther 4, 1-17. Until then, keep on digging.